Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series on the Holy Spirit today called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit with a message found from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So let's join Dr. Newfeld with this message, The Holy Spirit and Love. Today, as we end our study on the Holy Spirit, I want to speak about the Holy Spirit and love, or the deep abiding spiritual unity that all believers have with each other. But as I say this, I think we all get it. Individual Christians and local churches and denominational structures are less than perfect. Individual Christians and local churches and denominational structures sometimes sin. And when we do sin, especially when it comes to those large public sins, people are left wounded, disillusioned, discouraged, and bitter. Sometimes people just stop going to church. Sometimes entire churches fragment and cease to exist because of the sins of some. Churches that were once healthy can become diseased. Sometimes people are left with such bitterness that anger becomes the defining characteristic of their lives. Sometimes we hear the whispers, hypocrites. If that's what the church is all about, count me out. We all know the stories. But there is more, painfully more. You may have read statistics to show that there are over 40,000 different Christian denominations in the world. Furthermore, in the year 1900, there were only 1,600 of them. We have added close to 40,000 denominations in 100 years. This statistic is often quoted against Jesus' statement in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The divisions among us, say our critics, are proof we are not the disciples of Jesus. Difficult accusations indeed. What shall we say? Well, several things. We should at least learn to be honest in our description of things. The denomination spoken of must be defined. How do we come up with a 40,000 number? Interestingly enough, the term denomination is defined in terms of organizations and not necessarily separate belief systems. It's simply not true that there are 40,000 different separate belief structures among Christians, nor is it true that Christians are splintered into 40,000 different subsets. Let me explain further. A large percentage of that number, what are called separate denominations, are in fact not denominations at all, but independent churches. So in Africa, many of the large independent churches, each one gets counted as a separate denomination. Furthermore, some global denominations are divided into national branches for the sake of organization, and yet each national branch gets listed as a separate denomination. So the number 40,000, which is often cited by critics of the Christian faith is, in my opinion, a greatly exaggerated and misleading number. Nothing of the kind actually exists. Furthermore, some so-called denominations are simply new groups of Christians forming in local settings to address the needs in their areas. What would truly help would be to take stock of how many different belief structures within the Christian church there actually are. And if we did that, the number would not be a large one at all. Now, before we even try to get at that number, let me suggest that we need to rate the nature of Christian disagreements. There is a vast difference between those who reject the Trinity, let's say, and those who disagree over the meaning of the term baptism of the Spirit, for example, as we've done in this study. 
You know, when we disagree on the use of the term baptism of the Spirit, we're always aware that the other is our brother or sister in Christ. There's a great difference between those who say, I don't believe in the second coming of Jesus, and those who say, I don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. See, not all disagreements are of the same order. Boy, do we need to hear that in our day, where some of us are so quick to shut the other out. See, most Christians intuitively understand the difference between disagreements over essentials and disagreements in non-essentials. It is not that disagreements over non-essentials are not important. It's just that we can have these disagreements without ever doubting the other is a believer. There's much more to say here, but, you know, time doesn't allow. But some of the essentials include the knowledge that our God is triune, that one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The belief in the Trinity is essential. That's because if we deny the Trinity, we are not even talking about the same God as found in the Bible. Essential beliefs also include the truth that Christ Jesus, in his incarnation, is fully man even while he remains fully God. We call that the two natures of Christ. Essentials include the absolute authority, even inerrancy, of Scripture. They include that Christ's death on the cross is a substitutionary atonement, his life given to atone for ours. They include the assurance that Jesus is Lord and will physically and bodily return in history to judge the living and the dead. They include the reality that we must repent of our sins and by faith claim the promises of God through Christ in order to be justified before God. Justification by faith. These are not small matters. They're large matters. And the degree of unity over these matters are far greater than any disunity we would find among people who hold the essentials. I would quickly add that this unity on essentials is because of the clarity of Scripture and the illumination of the Holy Spirit bringing a unity upon all true believers. Again, I don't wish to downplay our differences, only to say, far more important than acknowledging our differences is the importance of not exaggerating our differences and the importance of acknowledging the genuine spiritual unity that the Holy Spirit has given all the people of God. I will have no part, as some do, of condemning every slight difference between us. That's not to say that we would paper over our differences. We should insist on being biblically precise, allowing the Bible to persuade us in our discussions with each other. Where we have been wrong, we need to acknowledge that. But in this, let us be loving. I'm tempted here to try to talk about the real substantive differences one actually finds among Christians and the historic differences that still divide us. That is a valuable conversation, but I have in this final message on the Holy Spirit something very different in mind. I have in mind the matter of factions and mistrust and hurt and self-centered harm and the lack of humility in some and the unwillingness to put the interests of Christ ahead of our own interests and even the devastation some believers have done to others because of a lack of love. Consider the evidence found in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 1.15, Paul makes mention that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry true, but he is gentle in this, still rejoicing that even though the motivation may be impure, yet, he says, Christ is preached, and in that he rejoices. He never doubts that those who have poor motivation are not to be rejected, especially when the gospel is true. 
But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he tells the Philippian Christians to watch out for the dogs, he says, the evildoers. And here he speaks of those who teach false doctrines. He holds out no peaceful branch to those who deny the essentials of the faith. And so not to belabor the point, we must know the difference between those two categories. Now, my interest today as we speak about the Holy Spirit and his role in bringing about love and unity among believers is not to discuss the theological differences there may be between denominations, but to discuss those areas of brokenness among us that arise from sin and a lack of humility and conceit and serving our own self-interests and pride that exist in the local church. I want to think micro rather than macro. I think it's a fitting way to conclude our study in the Holy Spirit by making a study of Philippians 2, 1-2, which is about the unity in the local church. It reads as follows. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, let me start at the end of the passage. Did you notice that the word same gets repeated twice? The same mind and then the same love. Then comes the phrase full accord, meaning you're in complete unity with each other. Then the phrase one mind, reemphasizing the idea of same mind found at the beginning of the sentence. Think the same way, says Paul. Be unified. Be in step with each other. In Ephesians 4, which seems like a parallel passage, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit has already brought a unity that binds all true believers together, and we are safeguarded with that unity. People need to do all they can not to break what the Holy Spirit has already brought us. In Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, listen to what Paul says. There is one body, only one, and one Spirit, not two Holy Spirits leading in opposite directions, but just one. And then Paul adds, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We hear all the unity words, one God, one church, one faith, and so forth. The true gospel brings unity, not division. And because that's true, when we get to Philippians 2, we're going to notice that Paul uses an if-then statement. If certain things are true, then unity will follow. And when we come back, I'll show you exactly what he means. The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in the book of Revelation, is Dr. Neufeld's most recent series. This four-volume series will be heard in its entirety over the next number of months. But each time we broadcast a new volume, we want to offer it to you at a very special price. Volume 1 includes an in-depth look at Revelation chapter 1 to 5, including a study of the seven churches, and all 15 messages are yours on CD for only $10, and it includes shipping. So order The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 1, today for your personal study or as a great addition to your church library. And remember, this series and all of our ministry programs are available as a result of the gracious gifts of our listeners. So order Volume 1, The Triumph of the Lamb, today for only $10 or make a gift to support this ministry by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Philippians 2, 1-2, Paul uses an if-then statement. If four things are true of your experience, then unity is 
bound and determined to follow. So what we're going to do now is look at those four if statements that Paul uses and see how they lead to our unity. Here's the first of them. If there is any encouragement in Christ. So here's truth number one. There is encouragement found in Christ. And Paul is writing these words to a persecuted church, which was in danger of being intimidated by the pagan community. Paul might be referring to the comfort from Christ that persecuted believers feel. Perhaps he's in mind the resurrection of Jesus and the sure knowledge that every believer has that death cannot ultimately harm us. Christ's promise is true. Or perhaps he means the encouragement that the Philippian believers have when they spend time in prayer and sense Christ's peace in the middle of the storm. But whatever he's referring to, the real point is that the entire church in Philippi, all the believers there could say, yes, all of us have experienced the encouragement in Christ. Now, then he adds a second truth. If there is comfort from love. So here's truth number two. There is comfort from love. Here, Paul does not mention whether he's thinking about the love of God, which is our comfort, or the love that the believers have for each other, which comforts us. We know that in Romans 5.5, Paul speaks of the love of God poured out in our hearts, but we also know that love for fellow believers always flows from love of God. And the point is, when the believers at Philippi had been most upset by the threats against them, which came from the pagan city in which they lived, had not love been their consolation. They may have been hated in the streets of Philippi, but they were not hated in the fellowship of God's people. Didn't they all know what that felt like? Yes, they did. Two truths, encouragement in Christ and comfort from love. Now, he says, if there is participation in the Holy Spirit. So here's truth number three. There is participation in the Holy Spirit. Since this has been a series about the Holy Spirit, this kind of language ought not to surprise us. We participated in the Holy Spirit from the moment we were first drawn to Christ. When we consented to his wooing, we participated in the use of spiritual gifts. We participated in our ongoing growth in holiness. But here specifically in the Philippian letter, Paul reminds the Philippian believers of what he had already taught them. His imprisonment in Rome has been a part of God's plan for his life. Because of his arrest in Jerusalem and his transport to Rome, in which he will stand before Caesar's tribunal and might be condemned to death. Because of all that, which must have seemed to the Philippians like a terrible turn of events, and yet it turns out that because of this, the entire Roman imperial guard had heard the gospel, and the intimidated Roman believers who watched Paul's courage were now emboldened to share their own faith with courage. Furthermore, in Philippians 1.19, Paul expects that when his trial actually occurs, he expects, he says, to be filled with the Holy Spirit at that very moment, to have courage once more and share the gospel in the Roman halls of justice so that the elite of Roman society will hear the good news of the gospel. Were it not for these trials and were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit in me, none of this opportunity for advancing the gospel would ever have occurred, he says. And so as he's speaking to the Philippian believers who are facing their own persecution, has there not been a participation with the Holy Spirit in the advancement of the gospel? That's his question. Has not the Holy Spirit used their trials to make the gospel well-known and filled them with a power to be witnesses? Have they not experienced that in their church, he asks? And since the Holy Spirit makes Christ known, says Paul, haven't you noticed how you participated with him in making Christ known? We might not have believed that it would come through trials the way it did, but it did come this way. Is that not what you experienced? 
And then the final if statement. If there is affection and sympathy, he says. So here's truth number four. There has been affection and sympathy. Now, this fourth truth is quite amazing. Those two words can also mean compassions and mercies. And Paul knows that these believers have both experienced and done plenty of these things. You know, the Philippian church that Paul addresses in this letter was perhaps as close to a model church in the New Testament as we might find. When the call was given to give financially to help poor, needy believers, this church stepped up first. When Paul looked for support for his own ministry, this church stepped up as none others. They prayed for him as none others. In fact, what led to the writing of the Philippian letter was a gift that had come all the way from Philippi in Greece to the prison where Paul was housed in Rome. Roman prisons didn't provide the prisoners' basic needs. That had to come from others. And so hearing that the beloved apostle was in prison, the Philippian church had held an offering of support and then called one of their own, probably a deacon, a man by the name of Epaphrodites, to risk his life to carry money for Paul's basic needs and to deliver this money over a great distance. The journey almost cost Epaphrodites his life. But that was the love this church had for the great apostle. Affection, sympathy, compassion, mercy. That was their joint life together. And that's what they showed each other. See, in a sense, the Philippian letter is a thank you note from the apostle to a group of Christians he loves with all his heart. A group of Christians who showed everything that included affection and mercy. He's telling them he's not only fine, he says, he's rejoicing because of his imprisonment. The gospel is going forward, and they in their own sufferings should learn from his example and rejoice in their own sufferings. In chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them in their struggles to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side with each other for the gospel. Don't break ranks, he says to them, and your refusal to be divided will be a clear sign to your enemies that they can't win, but rather that the gospel will prevail. That's the drama of the book. And so when he wants to encourage them in their love and unity for one another, he reminds them of four great truths they had already experienced. And those truths, encouragement in Christ, comfort from heartfelt love, participation in the great work of the Holy Spirit to reach the lost for Christ, and compassion and mercy for those who were most severely afflicted had been their experience. And since these things are yours, says the great apostle, now make my joy complete or make my day. I've already told you the joy I have in my imprisonment that in spite of my persecutions, the gospel is being preached more widely than you could ever have imagined. That, says Paul, has made me rejoice, but one thing is still lacking in my joy. I want to hear four things. I want to hear that you're of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with each other, and that you are of one mind. Here's my observation. Did you notice that unity comes to us when we are about the master's business? When evangelism and advancing the gospel becomes our focus, when holiness is necessary, for how can we do the work of Christ without it? When we see how great the task is, that were it not for the power of the Spirit, we would be defeated in an instant. And it is when the believers see the same thing, are motivated by the same purpose, are willing to pay the ultimate price together, that real unity actually begins to happen. 
One of the biggest problems regarding unity among believers is we have not yielded to Christ in his call to keep the Great Commission, and we have not yielded to the Holy Spirit to empower us to the task. Be radically obedient to Jesus and rely fully on the Holy Spirit and watch how the Spirit draws us toward one another. He brings unity out of a common focus and a common desire. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have given the body of believers and every single individual believer the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have caused us to love you and the Word. Thank you that you have given us power to bring the Word to a lost humanity. And thank you that you have given us love for one another so that we might indeed demonstrate the life that Christ has for us. In the precious and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. John, I think this series has brought so much light into respect to the the Holy Spirit and and how he works in our lives and and those things we need to understand about the Spirit. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about today's message, though, you talked about unity. and It really is a spirit of unity, isn't it? It's not like everybody has to be the same or every denomination has to be the same. I think the Lord values diversity, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I, I think not diversity in our theology, and you and I agree with that. We, we need to be centered on the truth of God's Word. But there are diversities of ministries, and, and I think that we probably need to celebrate that because the more that we've tried to, to get some kind of an organizational unity, the more that we have deliberately divided believers against one another. But when we allow for God to, you know, have a, a certain uh, group of people who, who emphasize something, um, and, you know, in your case, Ben, you're, you're with the Salvation Army, and there's a great emphasis on the poor and preaching the gospel to the poor and caring needs for the poor. I mean, that's such an important emphasis. Um, but there are other uh, denominations that will uh, do something else. I mean, hear it back to the Bible. I mean, we're not a church, but, but we are an organization that seeks to bring people uh, to the Word of God. We know that there are certain things that we don't do. I mean, we don't do the work that, let's say, Compassion Ministry does, so we partner with them and recognize that, you know, we don't have an organizational unity with partners, with, with people like that, but, but we, we are one in spirit with them. So we have this sense that God wants to use us in very unique ways, and so we need to be aware of that. Yeah, and, and maybe we need to uh, give each other a little bit of grace as we see some people uh, doing ministry that we might not do. And again, let me put the caveat around that. When it comes to the truth of Scripture— Uh, the truth of our theology, the truth of doctrine, there God calls us to strict unity. But when it calls uh, to the gifts that we practice, well, we practice them in great diversity. And let's allow for that kind of diversity while we're in unity with each other. Thanks, John, for this series. It's been a great blessing. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Beginning March 6th, we'll be introducing a new, exciting video-based ministry program called Truth and Life Today. Truth and Life Today is a new venture designed to give Dr. Newfeld the opportunity to speak directly to the many Bible and Christian life questions we receive from our listeners every day. Now you'll get the chance to hear and see Dr. Newfeld answer your questions. Truth and Life Today will be released every Monday at truthandlifetoday.com. 
There you'll also have the opportunity to send in your questions to Dr. Newfeld for a future episode. So make sure to join us every Monday or check out any of our previously broadcast episodes at any time, all at truthandlifetoday.com. And to receive more information about all the Bible teaching resources, events, and activities taking place for Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.